Hi, welcome back. This is Doug Ober, the creator of the Global Migration Podcast, brought to you by the Migration Research Cluster at the University of British Columbia. As the world confronts what many are calling the first modern pandemic, governments are being faced with a host of new problems, but few are as pressing as the need to maintain global supply chains and the continued functioning of essential services. Here in Canada, as elsewhere around the globe, the focus on essential services has meant that the public spotlight has been suddenly shown on the critical roles that temporary foreign workers play in Canadian society. In this episode, featuring four UBC scholars, our host, Dan Hebert, Professor of Geography, speaks with Bethany Hasty, Assistant Professor in the Allard School of Law, Aryan Karimi, the Banting Postdoctoral Fellow in Sociology, and Bronwyn Bragg, PhD candidate in geography. Ariane, Bethany, and Bronwyn have all recently published op-eds and policy pieces advocating for migrant rights, and in their wide-ranging conversation today, they discuss why temporary foreign workers are not only so essential to the Canadian economy, but how structural inequalities inherent in their legal status puts these workers at greater health and safety risks, exacerbates the public health crisis, and poses fundamental questions about the very nature of Canadian society. Be sure to check out our website to read their articles. And as usual, thanks for tuning in. All right, welcome everyone. My name is Dan Hebert, uh, and I'm gonna be moderating this. And I'm gonna introduce it with a few comments. And what I'd like to say is uh, to start this all off, when we have a crisis, that tends to really put underlying social issues like inequality, for example, into sharp focus. Uh, things that we take for granted in our everyday lives suddenly become under a microscope, suddenly become things that we can really question and think about uh, and, and, and understand better uh, the way our social system is put together. So in a way, a crisis gives us a kind of an opportunity uh, to think about things. And what I'd like to do now is just offer a few background thoughts on the group of people that we're concerning ourselves with today, which are temporary foreign workers in Canada. So give a little bit of a you know, two-minute summary of, of where we are on that issue. Then talk about where we're going in this particular moment, this particular moment of crisis related to the COVID-19 virus. And then set us up with some big questions uh, that we should consider over the next little while. And after that, I'll just turn things over to our three uh, very capable panelists to, uh, to get their views uh, on these particular issues. So starting with the background on temporary foreign workers, this is not just a Canadian issue, it's a global issue. And one of the things I pay a huge amount of attention to are the statistics on COVID infection rates uh, and deaths around the world. It's not a very pleasant thing to be looking at, but I look at it all the time. I'm kind of obsessed about it these days. And, you know, if you have a chance to look at these statistics, and by the way, I would highly recommend a site called Worldometer. Uh, they have a, um, a, a daily update on COVID. They have a bunch of statistics. It's really valuable for anyone who's sort of like a statistics uh, fanatic like I am. You get your daily hit uh, easily from Worldometer's site. And two countries that have among the world's highest rates of COVID infections are very instructive. One of them is Qatar and the other is Singapore. They have among the very highest rates in the whole world. And why do those countries have such high rates of COVID infection? Because they have big 
uh, temporary foreign worker populations. They live in designated barrack type areas. They're, they're closed off from the rest of the population of those, uh, of those countries. And once COVID gets into those particular settings, it runs uh, rampant. And in those countries, you can see very high rates. So that's kind of indicative of, of the global system. And like it or not, Canada's part of that system too. And, and we have quite a large uh, temporary foreign worker presence in Canada. Not as large on a per capita basis as in Singapore or Qatar, but we, we, we do have this particular issue uh, that we need to think about. And just to give you a sense of numbers, generally speaking, uh, we have two kinds of programs that bring workers into Canada. In the last five years, typically about a third of a million people come uh, per year uh, through one or the other of those two programs. And let me quickly outline what those programs are. One is a whole set of different pathways to work in Canada that is generally labeled International Mobility Program. And uh, this International Mobility Program is the largest of the entry points for temporary people to come to Canada. Roughly speaking, close to a quarter of a million people come to Canada each year through this program. And this program is distinctive in that people apply for it as individuals. So someone maybe wants to take, let's say, a youth working holiday in Canada, and they apply from maybe Ireland. That's really quite a big source of, of youth coming to Canada through this program as an individual, and they come to Canada and perform work in the Canadian labor market. Then another, up to about 100,000 people a year, come through a quite different kind of program, and this is the classic temporary foreign worker program. In fact, that's the title of the program. Uh, and these are people who don't apply as individuals. The applications for these people come from employers. So employers will approach the Canadian government and they will say, oh, we don't have enough truck drivers or we don't have enough dishwashers in our restaurant or we don't have enough people to clean up our hotel rooms. And so we want then an allocation of a certain number of people we can bring into Canada to perform these particular functions. Up to about 100,000 people a year. Uh, are coming into Canada through that particular portal and, and are joining uh, the Canadian labor market. Generally speaking, in both the International Mobility Program and the Temporary Foreign Worker Program, people come with the full range of skill levels and you know, educational background and so forth. I mean, very prominent Canadian companies bring in people through these programs to perform highly paid kinds of work. But especially the temporary foreign worker program has a cluster at what is seen to be the low end of the skill spectrum. And these tend to be uh, some of the occupations that I've already mentioned, things like uh, hotel room cleaners, restaurant, kitchen workers, healthcare um, workers that are relatively poorly paid uh, in things like elderly care homes. And by the way, that's a very, very important issue when we consider the, uh, the spread of COVID in Canada. Lots of workers across the whole food uh, supply uh, chain system come in uh, through this. The people who pick soft fruit in fall, uh, the people who plant many crops in the spring, and so forth. So healthcare, cleaning, food serving, and, and so on. And uh, that brings me to my second point, which is uh, what's happening to this set of people and this set of activities during this moment of crisis uh, related to COVID-19. Well, we know the Canadian border has been, for all intents and purposes, closed. 
not quite perfectly sealed, but nevertheless pretty close. Well, a couple of statistics to give you a sense of that. Airline passenger levels have dropped 98% uh, since before the COVID crisis. In terms of land crossings on the border, those are down 89%. And the only reason they're not down 98% is because there are essential food supply systems people that are allowed to pass back and forth the Canada-US border. But Canada's immigration system is fundamentally kind of closed because, of course, people aren't allowed to enter Canada by air or by uh, uh, road networks. Now, in terms of temporary foreign work, what's been happening is uh, the government of Canada is still processing the visa applications for temporary foreign workers under priority system. And priority is given to what are considered essential uh, workers right now. So people who will perform healthcare are still being allowed to enter Canada and people who are working in the food supply management system, whether they're agricultural workers or food processing workers uh, or other management people in the food supply system and so forth. But what I'd like to do is, is finish this little introductory set of comments with four big issues or questions that I hope will percolate through our discussion. The first of those is the kinds of work I've been describing are permanent features of Canada. We're always going to need people to sweep floors. We're always going to need people to vacuum rugs. We're always going to need people to flip hamburgers. We're always going to need people to supply healthcare services, to cut meat, and so forth. These are permanent jobs, but they get filled by people who are here on a temporary basis. And we should think about that as a policy. Does it make sense to bring people in to do things that are always gonna be needed and keep cycling in new people year after year for those permanent tasks? So that's the first question is the nature of temporary work. The second thing has to do with the overall concept of skill and how we assess skill. Who is skilled? What is skill? You know, I can drive a car, but, you know, don't put me behind the wheel of a great big truck pulling a trailer load of food. So, you know, how do we value uh, skills in an economy? Uh, and what does that look like in a, in a larger uh, uh, societal sense? So that's the second question. The third question is the overall relationship between citizenship, belonging, and work. So what we've tended to do is we've tended to try to separate those things, right? So you can be a citizen of Canada and not work. You can also work in Canada and not be a citizen, right? So we've, we've, we've pulled those things apart in the policy. And we, we should, I think, take this moment as an opportunity to think whether that's been a smart thing to do. Is it realistic? Is it ethical to bring in people to perform vital work functions but not to provide them with an, a pathway toward uh, full belonging in Canadian society. And then the final issue uh, that I'd like to raise is the extent to which we're able to know important questions about these issues. Like there's a lot of data that is available to us, but the data don't go particularly far. For example, we will know how many Canadians are sick, but we don't know how many temporary foreign workers get sick in Canada in a given year? It's just a, it's just a great big question mark. How many temporary foreign workers go to hospitals uh, in Canada uh, every year? We, we just don't know. So an, an important question is, 
to what degree ought there be a better level of knowledge about the particular issues that we've, uh, that we've been discussing. What I'd like to do now is to turn to our three panelists. So I'm gonna start then by uh, asking Ariane to uh, take over for the next five or six minutes. Sure, first of all, I should thank everyone for being here. So maybe two, three months ago, we started closing down, we started shutting down the factories, plants. We asked farmers to put things on a halt and we started talking about tracking individuals who might have been in contact with the infection. And then among all these discussions, this topic of temporary foreign workers, who these people are, can we really regulate their residency status? Can we allow them to keep coming to Canada amid all these financial problems and health issues? Can we really track their health status? So this whole topic made me think, why is that? now so important to talk about foreign workers. What have we been doing so far that we suddenly, out of nowhere, we start focusing on this minority, maybe small numbers, but apparently now it is obvious that they are quite vital to our economy. So I, I started doing some research and I realized that there, is, there are so many strict regulations in place that some of them are quite surprising. For example, why is that so far these foreign workers' access to healthcare and health insurance is exclusively controlled by their employer? So whatever the employer decides upon signing the contracts, they will have to follow without being in direct touch with the provincial or federal government. Basically, these individuals have no say and this comes at a point that we are quite aware of the cases that employers have been abusing these uh, workers, whether it's regarding their payments or regarding applying for uh, further work permits, etc. So this made me think that we need to first take a step back and think about why do we have these strict policies in place? Why the employer is in charge of the foreign worker why not the provincial government, similar to as any other Canadian citizen or whoever has legal residency status in Canada? International students, short-term academic uh, researchers, permanent residents, citizens, they all deal with the federal and provincial governments. Why not these foreign workers when it comes to healthcare? So at the time that we were writing that piece, advocating for the governments to... Uh, come forward, take things into their hand, and extend the healthcare system uh, in a way that these workers can also be covered uh, by our, uh, uh, our services. So the BC government was really quick on that, and they extended the coverage to temporary foreign workers. They uh, suspended the requirements, the three months to six months uh, require, uh, residency requirements, etc. This was an interesting move on, on behalf of the British Columbia government, but there's also other examples. So in other countries, Portugal, for example, has now extended access to healthcare to all residents in Portugal, whether they are uh, short-term residents, whether they are foreign workers or somewhere in between, asylum seekers, etc. 
Another example is Italy, where the government very recently, I think it was last week, that they decided to legalize the status of immigrants who had lost their legal status, whether they were laid off and they were unable to renew their uh, work permits or simply because the farm or the factory that they were working for had shut down and again, they had lost the ability to extend or renew work permits. These measurements came all out of looking at the costs and benefits of including foreign workers into our healthcare systems. When talking about the costs and the benefits, I'm talking about the financial as well as the social aspects. So is the contribution that these individuals are making to our financial system bigger than us extending our access to our healthcare system? What are the costs? Are they making bigger contributions? What, how does that compare to them accessing once in a while to our healthcare um, services? On the other hand, I mentioned about tracing individuals. What are the costs of including these individuals in the healthcare system, which would also allow us to track these individuals? We are giving them access to healthcare. We are legalizing their status. They are allowed to stay here, which means that it is easier for us to trace the health status of these individuals, whether they are in big or smaller communities. So going from that, the question of why to what is happening right now, talking about the costs and benefits, I'm just thinking about the future, the, those considering the policy changes, et cetera, that you mentioned again in, in your uh, introduction. Are we going to collect any data on a cost and benefits? How many temporary foreign workers who have now been allowed to access healthcare in Canada, in, in BC, how many of them have used these services? What costs they have brought onto the system and how does it measure against the financial contributions that they have already made to our farms, to our factories, to our meat processing plants, etc.? That would, I guess, open this bigger question of, are we going to revoke this emergency measure that we have in place now after the pandemic is over? Are we going to the previous status of restricting their access again from the healthcare system or no? And does this mean we are moving towards a more uh, inclusive society? Does, it, does this indicate a new sense of solidarity? And I would like us to consider, are we talking about us as Canadian citizens, as Canadian residents who are trying to consider their own financial gains and we are trying to protect ourselves compared to these foreign workers by saying that, okay, let's give them legal status or access to healthcare because I don't want to risk my health. Or are we saying that, no, let's extend these social services just because they are individuals, just because they are human beings? <laughs> Thanks very much. Uh, your comments make me think very much of the situation that occurred in the first country that really had a formal guest worker kind of program, which was Germany. It started in the 1950s. Uh, and there's this long-standing quip that's made about the German guest worker program, which is, we wanted workers, we got people. The, 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 the sort of expectation of a temporary foreign worker program is you just bring in people to do a job, and then when the job is over, people go back. 
there's there's no need for social costs uh, when when that happens. But of course, workers are actually people. They you know uh, hit their finger with a hammer and on the job they they get sick. Uh, they they are human beings. Yeah. But we must move on. Uh, Bethany, please, can you uh, tell us about what you've been learning and, and, and thinking about these issues? Yeah, thanks very much. So what I'd like to do is pick up on a few points about the legal regulation of migrant workers in Canada and what we've really seen from the pandemic or what the pandemic has illustrated about how that works, about some of the enduring challenges we know exist within that legal regulation. And that connects, I think, really well to some of the questions that you posed at the outset, Dan. So just a little bit of extra background information. Canada brings in migrant workers to work in a variety of low-wage jobs in particular, including food services, caregiving, and agriculture. And many of these workers do come through that general temporary foreign worker program that Dan discussed at the outset, which has been in operation in Canada since the 1970s. Canada also has a program specific to seasonal agricultural work, which is the Seasonal Agricultural Workers Program. This is one of the oldest temporary labor programs in Canada. It's been in place since the 1960s and it brings in migrant workers from countries including Mexico, Guatemala and Jamaica for up to eight months per year to work in Canada's agricultural industry. And so to pick up on the question about skill, I think that one thing the COVID uh, pandemic has really done is shone a light on the value of migrant labor in Canada and especially as concerns our migrant agricultural workers. So when the borders were first closed to foreign nationals by the federal government in mid-March, uh, this included being closed to migrant workers, as we know. But this quickly changed course, especially after farmers in particular became vocal about the need for migrant workers during their harvest season. And so news stories and interviews with farmers illustrated that it wasn't just a matter also of having bodies to do this work but that migrant workers, many of whom come back to the same employer and the same farm year after year, had developed specialized skills and knowledge that meant they could do the work particularly efficiently and effectively compared to a domestic or new workforce. And so I think this is a really important point because low wage migrant labor is often thought of as low skill labor. But actually, that's not true, right? In many respects, it's highly skilled labor. And I think that's really become more visible during this pandemic when the availability of that specific labor force became threatened. So for me, that's the first important lesson that's become clearer um, and, and more visible as a result of the pandemic. And the pandemic has also illustrated really how essential this kind of work is um, and that migrant workers in particular do for the benefit of the Canadian economy. So again, looking at agricultural workers, many news stories and interviews with farmers, uh, for example, demonstrated a real concern that their whole season would fall apart, that their crops could collapse, right? If migrant workers weren't allowed to come and do this harvesting labor. So the work that they're doing is necessary and it benefits the Canadian economy and they're not as easily replaceable as some might think. So again, for me, the pandemic's then really shone a light on the, uh, not only the presence and extent of migrant labor that we rely on in Canada, but also of its value and its really essential character. And so migrant workers are being recognized then at this moment 
for the valuable and essential work they do in Canada, but there are still a lot of issues and challenges that they face in their employment, which I think the pandemic has also illustrated in some ways. So because migrant workers in Canada are dependent on their employer for their job, for their immigration status, and often especially for agricultural workers for their housing, this means that uh, they operate in an environment in which they can be abused and exploited. As Arian mentioned, there is research that documents a wide range of abuse and exploitation of migrant workers in Canada, ranging from wage theft and employment rights violations to physical and sexual abuse and assault. So it's a program that has a lot of problems. And these problems are often compounded by the shared responsibility for different parts of the program between the federal and provincial governments. So while the federal government oversees the high level aspects of the program, the regulation of entry of uh, migrant workers into Canada, a lot of responsibility for operational regulation ultimately falls to each province. And this can create particular issues in ensuring that migrant workers' employment rights are being respected and protected, especially because there are a lot of information gaps between the federal and provincial governments. And so looking at how this played out in the context of the pandemic, in March, when the federal government initially changed its position and began allowing migrant workers to travel to Canada, it didn't actually have in place any guidelines about their quarantine for employers. The government did act quickly to try and put these in place, but there was a gap of at least a few weeks where there weren't clear guidelines in place. And during that time, there was obviously great risk for both the workers and the communities they were working and living in. But even after the guidelines came into place, there remain concerns by advocates across the country about whether and how the guidelines would be enforced. So as I mentioned earlier, migrant workers are known to suffer from an array of employment rights violations and abuses, and they face a lot of obstacles trying to assert their rights or seek remedy or recourse when they are faced with those abuses, because again, their job and immigration status and possibly housing are really dependent on their employer. So there's often a sense that they really don't want to rock the boat. And in addition to that, there's not a lot of proactive inspection or auditing that occurs by provincial uh, labor and employment authorities at the workplace. Uh, and that, in turn, is, is made more difficult where there isn't uh, available information um, shared between provincial and federal authorities about where migrant workers are. In BC, we recently passed legislation that creates a recruiter and employer registry for migrant workers in the province. And that means that our provincial government does have more information about where migrant workers are located. Saskatchewan and Manitoba also have legislation like this, but most provinces in Canada again don't. And so there may be a big information gap about where migrant workers are and therefore how uh, provincial authorities can effectively monitor and protect them in this pandemic and all the time in their everyday experiences in Canada. If we look ahead, what might this mean uh, for migrant workers in the future in Canada? I think that if we can take away the lesson first of recognizing how valuable and essential their work is to the Canadian economy, it might be able to provide a greater impetus or foundation for changes that have long been argued for under these programs, for changes that will improve their employment rights and protections, and especially improve the enforcement and effective enforcement of their rights and protections.
In addition, most low-wage migrant workers don't have access to permanent immigration or residency in Canada. But again, if we think about how this pandemic has illustrated the essential and valuable quality and nature of their work, it might give us impetus to rethink that prohibition on permanent immigration. So as Dan mentioned at the outset, there is really a permanent need for this kind of labor in Canada. Allowing low-wage migrant workers to immigrate permanently to Canada would create both a stronger sense of belonging and citizenship at work for them, while also meeting Canada's economic needs in the labor market. Thanks, Bethany. This brings us back to this issue of data, right? So how many inspections are done per year in Canada to employers that have hired uh, large numbers of temporary foreign workers? Do we know? No. How many violations were found during those inspections? Is there a nice little listing uh, somewhere that you can go on the internet and find these things? How many employers have been sanctioned for these uh, infractions of, of one sort or another? We don't know any of these things. They're, they're completely opaque, right? So uh, it tells us a little bit about these, these very important data gaps and how by not collecting and not divulging data, we can have kind of unseen problems that are percolating in, uh, in the Canadian system. Uh, so just a couple of comments. Uh, Bronwyn, please uh, tell us what you've been learning and what you've been thinking. Thanks, everyone. Um, this is such a rich discussion, and I'm, I feel really privileged to be part of it. I'm going to take the opportunity to talk a little bit about the intersection of temporary migration and workplace health and safety. So some of the themes that have already been really well articulated by the other folks speaking here. But I'm going to speak about that in relation to the situation of meat packers in southern Alberta, where I live. So in Alberta, there are several large meatpacking plants, particularly in the south. Cargill, uh, which employs over 2,000 workers, and JBS Foods, which is in Brooks, Alberta. And together, those two plants account for really a staggering 70% of beef that is produced in Canada. In late April, Cargill and High River was forced to shut down because one of the largest outbreaks of COVID-19 in the country and at the time uh, on the continent. The outbreak, which began with just a few dozen cases, as, as we now know, grew to over 900 cases among workers and another 600 cases in the community. Three people have died, two workers from the plant, as well as the father of one of the workers. Media reports in both the Globe and Mail and other areas have, um, other outlets have described how worker concerns about the virus were largely ignored by the company. And as we have been discussing, the government of Alberta had deemed the plant essential and the workers in it essential, which of course added pressure on workers to continue working despite their uh, concerns over workplace health and safety in relation to the virus. Um, the plant reopened on May 4th, so just a couple weeks ago, but there continue to be significant concerns over workplace health and safety. In thinking about our broader conversation, the situation at Cargill exposes the failures of our occupational health and safety systems, especially for vulnerable workers or workers with temporary legal status. And while the media coverage and public discussion has centered on the failure of Cargill as an employer, and certainly as a huge and highly profitable multinational company, they no doubt bear a significant amount of responsibility for the, the crisis that uh, workers have faced. I think it's also important for us to look at the wider policy and regulatory frameworks that allow for and enable worker vulnerability, which have been really 
well uh, described by, by Bethany. I just want to point to a few additional systemic failures that I see in relation to the occupational health and safety system and, and the relationship between both migrant workers, but also racialized and immigrant workers in these precarious, low-wage jobs. So most or many, but not all of the workers at Cargill are temporary migrants. And if we had more time, we could talk about the data issues around understanding the specific uh, worker categories in different um, industries. But the broader point around meat packers in Alberta is that most are racialized, and many have immigrant backgrounds, and many are um, temporary foreign workers or temporary labor migrants. And these workers are structurally disadvantaged when it comes to occupational health and safety and face a number of risks at work, which have already been identified. Um, we have evidence and data that suggests that Immigrant workers um, in general face higher levels of injury than Canadian-born workers in their first and early years in Canada and have structural barriers asserting workplace rights and safety. And this is really the result of an occupational health and safety system, which is driven by and centers around this idea of internal responsibility, or as others have described, this is effectively a complaint-driven system where workers are responsible for ensuring that they are safe at work and they have to assert their right to safety or refuse work. And temporary migrant workers, temporary foreign workers in, in Canada face particular disadvantages in relation to the occupational health and safety system for reasons that have already been identified um, and have been laid out clearly in, in a lot of research and by advocates, but I'm just gonna highlight a few key points that I see as being particularly problematic. Temporary migrant workers, including the meat packers in Cargill, rely on their employer for their work permit and therefore their right to remain in Canada, and that profoundly disincentivizes complaints over workplace safety. Second, workers are often dependent on that employer for a referral to permanent residence through the provincial nominee program should they desire to become a Canadian uh, permanent resident. And again, that really disincentivizes uh, the desire to, to make a complaint or to be the, the difficult worker that's voicing your rights to workplace safety. And finally, and this relates to Ariane's points around access to healthcare, should a worker become sick or injured, we know that temporary migrant workers are less likely to report this injury or illness to their employer because, again, they fear losing their job and, again, their work authorization and their ability to stay in Canada. And, um, and so there, again, there's a disincentivization to report issues. And just to kind of conclude where we are now today, um, I think the media has been reporting and advocates continue to articulate the fact that the challenges around health and safety in meatpacking plants uh, continue. When the plant reopened on May 4th, 85% of workers reported that they did not feel safe returning to work, yet the Chief Medical Officer for Health in the province continues to insist that if workers do feel unsafe, uh, they have the right to report their concerns to either Alberta Health Services or to Occupational Health and Safety. But because these systems have failed workers in the past, there's serious questions around why they might work now, what, what has changed. I think to sum up and to bring together the points that have been made previously, these internal logics to the temporary foreign worker program that people who've been studying and working on this issue have noted for years around 
the idea that the program is for geographically specific or short-term labor market needs, and as everyone has pointed out, they are in fact permanent needs in the labor market filled by people who are here on a temporary basis, who lack access to substantive rights um, and difficulty accessing basic protections in the workplace. And this has all sort of become very painfully apparent under the glare of the pandemic. And so I think it's important for us to think about how do we move from the system that we are currently in to a system that is fundamentally more just and equitable and based not on the fact that these people are workers, but uh, to Ariane's point that they are human beings who are entitled to fundamental rights around safety in the workplace, but also outside of the workplace. Thanks very much, Bronwyn. Now what I'd like to do is just reopen things for each of you to make a last uh, couple of comments. Ariane, uh, any further things occurred to you? Sure, yeah. It, it seems that we were all talking about data access to information and the data on basically different aspects of these foreign workers. My suggestion and my hope is that once the data is available, we can also compare this data uh, with other countries, which I mentioned earlier, for example, Portugal or Italy, and see if there is any incentive for the provincial or federal government to have these, the, the intervention that the BC government has in place right now, giving permanent access to foreign workers, basically, to our healthcare system. Is there any incentive to have this as a permanent policy? I'm just hoping that we could do some research or policymakers could look into this and fingers crossed that the, the response would be positive. Thanks very much. Bethany, any further thoughts? One of the interesting things that I think has come out of uh, all of the remarks today is really how the pandemic has in many ways simply brought into sharper or clearer focus the kinds of enduring challenges and issues that migrant workers in Canada face every day, every year. For me as a legal scholar, you know, one of the enduring challenges for migrant workers is really the gap that exists between the rights they do ostensibly have on paper and yet the ability for them to access those rights in practice and the many different layers of governance and, and regulatory actors that are needed uh, to help proactively ensure that those rights are respected at the outset. And I think that the comments from everybody today has also shown the ways in which uh, many other actors and sort of uh, areas of governance or ways of thinking about things are, are really needed. We need to bring these all together if we're, if we're going to have a meaningful solution. And hopefully this pandemic and the things that we've seen coming out of it will really provide that motivation and that impetus to, to make some real lasting change. Thank you very much. Bronwyn, last thoughts. Sure. Not to take us in a different direction in our final moment, but one point I just want to highlight that I don't think we've adequately addressed is the relationship between the temporary foreign worker program, especially the program that we tend to be talking about, so the quote-unquote low-skill or low-wage side of things, and the, the reality of undocumented or migrants without legal status in Canada and the sort of gray zone that exists between those workers. And I think here again, in the midst of a public health crisis, the sort of private and personal health issues of uh, highly vulnerable people have become um, of pressing public concern. And so I think we need to think about how this program not only creates deep problems for the workers who are in it, but also the kind of um, 
the trajectories out of that program and where people do end up um, because Canada, again, doesn't track exits. So we don't actually really know how, what that population looks like. Um, I mean, we have some evidence, but it's, it's not robust. So I think that's a piece of this puzzle that we need to keep in mind when we're talking about vulnerability and exploitation and uh, access to healthcare and rights and so on. Thanks very much. Uh, we've run out of time. I think we've had a really fruitful and, and rich conversation. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end it on just one little phrase uh, that I think percolates through everything we've said, which is the question, who are we? Who is in society? What is society in the 21st century? Uh, who belongs? And uh, how is that defined? Uh, and how is that uh, made to work uh, on everyone's behalf? So thanks all of you for coming along. Thanks to all the listeners of this podcast. That's all for today. Thanks for tuning in to the Global Migration Podcast. You've been listening to Dan Hebert, Bronwyn Bragg, Bethany Hasty, and Arian Karimi. To learn more about today's speakers, visit our website at migration.ubc.ca. And if you want to recommend a guest or topic, send me an email at admin.migration.ubc.ca. Until next time, be well and be kind.